Welcome to the Converge Community Church Podcast, where we provide for you the previous Sunday morning sermon. And now without further ado, may the Holy Spirit minister to your heart as you hear the preaching of God's Word. Today we're, we're going to do a l- something a little bit different than we usually do. Our, um, we're going to change up our diet of expository m- preaching or, and the expository message. And what I mean by that is usually what we do is go through a book. You know, we're going through the book of Matthew and going through it verse by verse and chapter by chapter. And the whole point of doing that is um, the intentions behind it is that helps us keep the word central God's word central and not necessarily our word, Um, because it's very easy for us to have our own thoughts and ideas and um, things that we think are important and keep hitting those every single Sunday rather than going to the word of God and seeing what the word has for us on that day. And um, but today we're going to do something a little bit different. This is uh, a topical message. And the reason is, is um, I think this is the Sunday that is um, called Sanctity of Life Sunday. So we want to reflect on the importance or the precious gift of life that God has given to us. And I know that uh, when it comes to the sanctity of life and particularly the issue of abortion, it's, uh, this, that's a difficult issue. It's a contentious subject in our culture and um, often entangled in politics and hostility, and it causes great amount of division. And it's tempting for us to paint those with differing views as monsters. And, um, you know, a lot of this, you know, it's, uh, it makes it so it's even wanting to kind of avoid this issue. You know, and I'm also aware that some here today or maybe that are piping in through the Internet that it's um, have experiences with abortion, have those they know um, that have had an abortion. And even the mere mention of it just makes people want to shy away. And so I just want to acknowledge that. And when it comes to the message this morning, Um, I want to just share my intentions. I don't want this to be me standing on a soapbox or passing judgment upon people or thinking that I have this moral high ground to stand upon. Um, I don't want to also, I don't want to foster unhealthy guilt or shame that drives people away from Christ. Because that's not our intentions as well. Instead, though, my aim is to share a biblical truth and the convictions that stem from scriptural understanding and through this draw our eyes upon Christ. So it's looking into the scriptures and trying to understand from scriptures the biblical perspective of the sanctity of life and and in that, through that, draw our eyes upon Christ as we engage with this issue with others. So let me kind of break this down. This is three parts where we're going to go through. This is the roadmap. First, we're going to look at the biblical perspective of the sanctity of life. We're going to look at it from scripture. Then we're going to think through why this matters in our current cultural landscape we find ourselves in today. And then lastly, we will explore how we as Christians engage with a culture that often adheres to a different set of values. And so with that, um, let's read. We're going to read Genesis. So if you would stand for me, with me in honor of the word, I'm going to read this out loud and you could follow along either in your own Bibles or on the screen. This is Genesis chapter one, verses 24 through 31. Hear the word of the Lord. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the living livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps 
along the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heaven and to every, everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food and it was so. And then verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was the evening and there was morning, the sixth day. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, we come before your word, and we are going to engage with your word, but we're also going to build from that. And um, Lord, in it, I pray that um, it'll be a way in which we will be formed into a greater likeness of Jesus as as we understand seek to understand and reflect upon the precious gift you've given us. That is the gift of life. Would you bless our time? We pray in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. All right. So we're going to go through this one by one. Number one is that there is a biblical perspective on the sanctity of life. And we see this in the book of Genesis. There is a contrast, a contrast between how God made all living things on earth and how he made us humans. So if you jump back to verse 24, when God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And, and it was so, I got, and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kinds. Do you guys get the pattern? You see the repetition? It is these creatures that are created according to their kinds. However, in verse 26, when God creates man, he doesn't say according to their kind. Instead, he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness, after our likeness. So there is something beautifully unique in the creation of mankind that separates us from all other living things. It's that we are made in the likeness of God. We're made, there is a spark of the divine in every human being created. Now, a lot of commentators and theologians try to, in in a lot of ways, speculate what that is, this this likeness that we have with God. And, And some of the answers are that we have a soul or we are self-aware. And um, there's various answers to this. I think one aspect of it also is that we we have a unique relationship with God, that we can have a more intimate relationship with God unlike any other creature living. And that is a beautiful, wondrous thing. So there's this way in which we, yes, we are made with the same material as living creatures, but there's something that is unique about humans. Verse 27 kind of reiterates this. Let me read it because he repeats it, which means that it's important. 
Verse 27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And so this is called, theologians often call this the Imago Dei. The Imago Dei, which is Latin for the image of God. So basically what it's saying here is that we are image bearers of God. As we're walking around, just think that we, of us as image bearers. We reflect God in some way. And this, this breaks down and gives us two ideas, two important truths when it comes to this understanding that we are image bearers of God. This is, I actually put it in a letter, letter A. Every human being is an image bearer of God and therefore possesses intrinsic value. Now I'm going to describe for you, I'm going to kind of unpack what I mean by intrinsic value. But every human being is an image bearer of God and therefore possesses intrinsic value. So this is a foundational biblical truth that has huge ramifications. And it instructs us on how we view ourselves and also how we view others. It, it shows us how we are to treat one another. And that is with dignity and respect as fellow image bearers. And it, this gets us to another point. And that is that the dignity and value we have as image bearers of God is not based on the color of our skin or the color of our eyes or hair. It's not based on our abilities or skills or talents. It's not based on status or material wealth. So the dignity and value we possess is based on our nature. And that's why I say intrinsic value. Intrinsic. That means it's something that it's because of what we are that gives us value, not necessarily what we do or how we act. It is, it is our nature that gives us this value. And so we are made in the image of God. We are image bearers, which means we have intrinsic value. So that's A. Here's B. Human life is valuable and should not be taken without just cause. Human life is therefore valuable and should not be taken without just cause. And so if we continue to move along in the book of Genesis, in this narrative, we see that Adam and Eve were created good. It was good that they were created and they lived in harmony with one another and with God. But then all of a sudden something changes. They take this forbidden fruit and they eat from the forbidden fruit. And then everything kind of go derails after that. They fall into sin there is punishment for their sin. And what's interesting is after, after this event, the next story in this narrative is a murder. So things, things escalate quickly when it comes to sin. First thing, forbidden fruit. Pretty bad. Next chapter, murder. And it was Cain killing his brother Abel. So in chapter four, after Cain kills his brother, God confronts Cain and he pronounces a judgment upon him. I want to read this to you because I think it's very insightful about the, uh, the extent of Cain's sin or how bad Cain's sin is. So let me read this. Verse 10, and the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground. This is the, the judgment. You're cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Verse 13 says that Cain said back to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face, I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. 
Now, later, God shows grace and mercy to Cain by giving a mark on him and, and preventing people to actually do that. But I do want to point out, though, the, the judgment upon Cain for this act of murder. The punishment we see is, number one, destitution, right? He takes the land from providing and, and, and giving him strength. So there's this aspect of, of now Cain must be in destitute for the rest of his life. He's also seen as a fugitive, always looking over his shoulder, wondering when the hammer will finally drop upon him. A wanderer, he will have no home. He will have no home. It's almost like uh, this idea of uh, solitary confinement, even. It's that kind of picture. And so the punishment we see for the first murder, it, I mean, this, the punishment kind of tells us how bad this is. But, it's, but we're going to see we're going to see it even um, an understanding that it's even worse than that. And so if you jump to Genesis chapter 6, and this is the flood account, right? God finally has enough, and he, he's going to do a restart. You know, like um, on a, your computer, if you, if you own an Apple computer and you have all these things up, and they're all running, and then you click on the one more thing, and the, wheel, the pinwheel starts turning, it's thinking and thinking and thinking, and your computer doesn't stop thinking because you've confused it and clogged it all up, Right? So what do you do? Time for a restart, right? So you just start everything anew, start everything fresh. And this is exactly what God had to do. Why did he have to do a restart? Well, Genesis chapter six, verse 11 tells us, it says, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. Now who's doing the violence? We know who was doing the violence. So the earth was filled with violence and God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And so it, during this time, there needed to be a restart because there was so much corruption and violence that God said, this is enough. We're going to have to do a, a, a restart. Here's the interesting thing about that Hebrew word violence. In the Hebrew word, it's actually pronounced in Hebrew, Hamas. Isn't that wild? And, and, and we know what that entails. We can, it gives us an idea of what we mean by violence. This is a really bad situation. And so God does a restart with Noah and his family. And after the flood, God gives Noah and his family the same command he gave Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth right? Because this is a restart. This is like a recreation. This is going back to the beginning and starting over. And so he's, he's starting afresh and giving the commands that he always gives, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But you know what? He also gives another command, a command that he didn't give Adam and Eve. And that is because he knows that this uh, sin still reigns, which means that we can fall into the same kind of evils that they've that happened before the flood. And so he gives this command. This is verse six. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. This is pretty wild. What he's doing here is he is connecting the value of human life to creation, right? This is why you are not to take the life of a man. It's because they are made in the image of God. And this is so bad to take a life of another image bearer. It's so bad. Your life will be asked of you. That's, that is what justice is. This is, this is God. You know, God is perfectly just. And this is about as just as you can get on this on this world, and it's that idea of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and a life for a life. Life, human life, is so valuable 
that doesn't call just for your eye or just for your hand. It calls for your life. The ultimate price. That is how valuable human life is. A quote from a commentator named Kent Hughes describes it in a way I I liked, so I'm going to share this with you. He says, since man is created in the image of God and as such is of immense value, and since the blood life of a man is God's alone, to take human life is to usurp God's sovereignty over life and death, and thus merits death itself. Precisely because life is so precious, the one who willfully takes another's life must suffer death at the hands of a man. All right, so I'm not trying to argue here for capital punishment. That's not my, my place right here, right now. That's not what I'm trying to point out. What I'm trying to point out is this is a foundational understanding of the sanctity of life. It is that it's sacred because we are uniquely created in the image of God, and therefore we have intrinsic value. And it's so valuable, it's so valuable. It's immeasurable. It's so much that by taking a life, your life is asked of you. So let me summarize. Every human being is an image bearer of God and therefore possesses intrinsic value. And human life is valuable and should not be taken without just cause. So now the question is this, why does this matter? Why does it matter? Here's the answer. It's because this, what we just walked through and understand through scripture is the framework in how to understand the varying sets of values we see in the cultural landscape today. It's a biblical framework in how to understand the varying set of values we see in the cultural landscape today. So, Um, If you go to the Sunday school class, um, especially uh, these past couple of weeks, I think we talked through this concept. It's a principle that we talk about when studying the Bible called text and framework. But it could be anything in framework, anything that we are receiving, any kind of information that we receive through our eyes and through our ears. We We can think through in this way of this idea of information and the framework that we have. And it's this idea that we all have a framework. This framework has been developing and building since the beginning of birth. When, when we uh, interact with our parents, um, how we are raised, when we were born, born, you know, what, what decade, what century we were born, our location, um, you know, what, what country that we live in, what area that we live in. All these things inform us and build this type of framework that we have in such a way that when what we receive gets um, interpreted and and um, formed in a way that we can understand. Okay, so it's kind of like having glasses on, and you know we talk about uh, rose-colored glasses that you see everything through a you know rose-colored glasses, basically that you see everything that great you know everything you put a good spin on, a positive spin on. It, it's that kind of idea, and um, a perfect example of this. I know I used this here not too long ago, but um, texting. We understand this when it comes to texting. When you text someone. It, they can read it differently, right? And so there's the skit where this, this guy, he's texting his friend, and the guy that's texting his friend, um, it shows his house, it's, it's perfect, it's clean, um, he's like well-dressed. So you can see this guy may be a little bit uptight, you know, and kind of intense. Um, and, and he's texting a friend who's still kind of like lounging on the couch, is kind of a mess, he's watching a sports uh, show or whatever, and he's like, um, the guy that's texting, hey, I, I know we scheduled something, are, are, are we going to do something? And the guy touches text back, yeah, whatever. And the guy that's a little uptight sees that and says, whatever, whatever. <laughs> do you really want to do this or not? And he's like, hey, it's up to you. Up. What do you mean up to we, we planned this. And it starts going back and forth. And finally, he goes, uh, the, the guy gets so intense and so irate. He's like, do you want to go down? You know, you, you want to fight? 
Uh, but he doesn't say you want to fight, but he, you, you want to throw down. And, it, and uh, the guy responds back, hey, I'm good or whatever. I don't know. Something along those lines where in the sense the guy goes storming into the other guy's house ready just to kill him. And the guy's sitting there playing on a video game. be like, hey, have a seat. Grab a beer. You know, like the same texting. But because of their framework, how they read those texts, they came to a totally different result or conclusion. Okay. And that's my point. We have this framework. And so we gather information and see it differently. And this really applies to our understanding of the sanctity of life and specifically when it comes to this issue of abortion. When we engage with culture, there's, we, we are living in a culture, for the most part, that has abandoned the notion of God and therefore has rejected human life possessing intrinsic value. Because you can only get intrinsic value if you have a God who has given it to us. That's the only way we can come up with this idea of intrinsic value. If there is no God, we have to come up with another way of imparting value on a person. It's got to come from somewhere else. And so there's this, this disconnect or this distinction in how we understand and how we think about humanity and the value of human beings. And so because of this distinction, what I want to do is uh, build this foundation for the sanctity of human life in the womb. Because I think that's a huge difference for those who are pro-choice, who try to argue for abortion. It comes down to this idea of what is life, human life, and the sanctity of that life. And so let's build a foundation from our biblical perspective of why human life in the womb has intrinsic value. All right. I'm going to give these points. There's going to be some sub points. Um, I'm not going to put it on the screen, but it is my, in my manuscript. So uh, if you want to look at this later and kind of work through it yourself, um, it's going to be um, attached to the Wednesday gems. So you can look at it for yourself. All right. So number one is this, what is growing in the womb of the woman is alive. It's alive, right? It, it grows. And so if, if you have abortion, that is, that would be killing it. Um, it would be extinguishing its life. So we know that whatever that is in the woman that's growing is alive. Now, the nature of this life in the womb is human. How do we know that? Well, because it is the product of human DNA, which means that there's a distinct genetic profile of this, this thing that's growing inside of them, and it's, and it's made up of human DNA. So a biologist or someone that, a uh, microbiologist that works with DNA, they can extract that DNA and go, this is human DNA. What, what this is is alive, and it has human DNA, Okay. Here's another reason why we know that it's human, because it is human in nature. If left to live, it will eventually result in an adult human. So just let nature takes its course. It will continue to develop and mature into an adult human. Here's another reason. Humans are humans, not because they have feet, hands, walk vertically, and speak, they are humans because of their nature. Because that's what, they're, what they are. Number four, what is growing in the womb does not have the nature of an animal or a bird or a fish. It has human nature. So it's not like there was this thing that was created or conceived and then it morphed into a human, that it was something other than human and then somehow changed and formed into a human. No, from the very beginning of conception, this is a human life, human DNA, left to its own natural 
development will become a human adult. Okay, so that's just kind of an argument for that the nature of this life in the woman is or in the womb is human. Therefore, to abort the life which is human in nature is to kill that which is human in nature. Therefore, abortion is killing a life that is human by nature. And we have already concluded that all human life has intrinsic value and therefore should not be killed. So I parse this out for us because this all stems from our biblical worldview of the Imago Dei, the image of God. This is why we as Christians have the conviction that abortion is evil and sinful. It's an evil and sinful practice in the eyes of God. It's because it destroys what God deems as precious and good. So we talked about the biblical perspective of the sanctity of life. We talked about why it matters. And now let's reflect on this question. How do we live in a world with a very different set of values than us? How do we live in a world with a very different set of values than us? So I'm going to go back to this example because um, it has basically just um, attached itself to me. And uh, so anytime I think through these issues and how to engage with people, I always come back to this. And this is the example of Daniel um, in the Old Testament. So Daniel, this, when he was a young man, he's taken from his country. He's taken from everything that he's known and he's thrown into a pagan culture. And he's supposed to learn a different language. He's learning a different language, a different culture. Um, he's, uh, he has a different name. And so everything is different. But here he has a conviction to remain faithful to his God. He wants to remain faithful to his God in a culture that is in some ways contrary, in many ways contrary to living for God. So how is he going to do this? So here's one example. So the, the commander that's over him, he's going to feed him the king's food. And the king's food on that table of the king has food that is unclean for Daniel to eat. If he eats this food, he is, he's going against the law of Moses and, and that's not good. And so now he's got an issue. I have these convictions and they're asking me to do something different. So what should he do? Some may say, hey, Daniel, go on a food hunger strike, right? Go on a hunger strike. Just refuse to eat. Or, or you know, give, give some type of, you know, protest. Um, fight back in some way. That's not what Daniel does. You know what Daniel does? He goes to his commander and says, hey, I have an offer for you. Feed us vegetables and fruit instead of from the king's table. The commander's like, hey, listen, if I do that, um, you guys might look weaker and, and be weak and, and look, you know, worse than the others. And I can't have that. I'll get in trouble for that. So Daniel goes, you know what? How about this? How about we try it out? We try it out for, I think it was, you know, two weeks or 10 days or something like that. And, and when, and afterwards, let's compare. What's wild about that is one, he's, he's kind of compromising. He's, he's humbling himself before the commander. He's asking, he's asking the commander to do this, to test this out for a time. And in doing so, trusting that the Lord's going to bless it. That's pretty wild. He's putting this situation in the hands of God in a way in which he goes, God, if, if you want me to stay in, in um, line with, with what you've called me to, you need to help me out here and make this happen. And sure enough, God blesses it. And Daniel and his friends who eat you know, fruits and vegetables look better than the ones that were eating from the king's table. And so you know what the commander does? He's like, huh, maybe we should... Maybe we should change. Maybe, maybe we should alter the culture a little bit here and do something different. Isn't that amazing? That how Daniel approaches it could have possibly changed the culture around him. Fascinating. Here's another one. 
This is later in Daniel's life. He is, um, he is seen as, um, as, as valuable, so valuable for the king. He's like lifted up. He's like second in command. He's like over like the whole nation, um, very prominent. And, and because of that, he's that, got these political enemies that want to destroy him and take him down. And they devise this plan to make a law of um, only to bow down and worship the king. So they go to the king. The king has to be the one that puts this into law. And they convince the king to do this. And, uh, and it says that when Daniel hears of this, of course, now again, he's in conflict, isn't he? Because he wants to follow the Lord. And part of that is to worship God. So what is he going to do? Well, with his power and influence, he could probably raise up an army and try to usurp the king. He can probably before, you know, and, and fight against it, protest, um, maybe try to flee. I mean, he could do all these kinds of things in order to keep to his convictions. But this is what he does. He goes to his room and he does what the scripture says. He does what he has always done. He doesn't veer, veer from anything that he's done before. So he goes to his room and he bows down and he prays and gives glory and honor to his Lord. He just continues to do what he had always done. Never veering from the left or the right. The enemies see this and, and uh, arrest him. And I don't know if there was really a trial, but basically the judgment is, is he's going to be thrown into this fiery furnace. Here's what's wild about it. The king who uh, implemented the law, established the law, was trying to do everything possible to save Daniel. He loved Daniel so much that he was trying to save Daniel, who rebelled against the king and his command. Why in the world would the king do that? Maybe it's because of how Daniel lived his life. Maybe it's because throughout his life, he always gave honor, respect, and even love for this pagan king. Daniel lived in a way where he would hold to his convictions and even in holding to his convictions, show honor, respect to those who deserved it. And when I mean deserve it, by their position, by who they were or what they were, right? So in the same way, us being image bearers of God and us interacting with image bearers, we are to do the same to treat others with honor and respect given to them because they have intrinsic value, the, the image of God. And those who even have roles over us like Daniel did to the king. And so the, the story continues, and this is what's very interesting with Daniel. So he gets thrown into, not the fiery furnace, it was the lion's den. Yeah, thank you. A lot, of, a lot of judgment and destruction in various ways, right? Fire, animals, lions. Okay, so Daniel in the lion's den. The next day, the king rushes out to him, hoping that he's still alive. Says, Daniel, did your God save you from the lion's den? And Daniel responds back. This is verses 21 and 22. Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. Here he is giving respect again. O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth. And they have not harmed me because, here's the reason why they did not harm me. Because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. Oh, man, I love that. For, I love that. This one, this one kind of like slapped me across the face because I, what in the world are you talking about, Daniel? I have found I, to be blameless before him, my God, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. How in the world could Daniel say that? He rebelled against the law that the king established. He was like a renegade by, by going against what the king's law established. And, and I, think, 
I think this is why. I think it's Daniel's heart. I think the king knew Daniel's heart. Daniel lived in such a way, and, and he's an older man at this time, but Daniel lived his life in such a way that the king knew that, that, um, that Daniel was faithful to him and, and loyal to him and loved him and honored him and respect him. I think, I think the king knew that. And also understanding that Daniel was going to hold to his convictions no matter what. And so there's something interesting there of being blameless before God, holding to his convictions while still honoring the king. There's something there. And now, now the question then is, 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 how can we live in that way? How can we hold to the truth, to our convictions from, from a biblical perspective, yet still be respectful and honorable to those around us? All right. So let me, let me attempt to answer that question. Uh, number one, and I use letters with this too, so this is A, is to speak the truth to save a life. This is basically when it's concerning to this issue of abortion. Speak the truth to save a life. So we're talking about a human life being extinguished. And so there are times we must stand up and speak out against abortion, not with vileness or disdain, but with pleading and petitioning because it's not about being right or proving our point. It's about saving lives, protecting babies who were made in the image of God. You see, this is a, a serious thing. Lives are being extinguished and they don't have a voice. And so as Christians, there is a way in which we need to speak the truth about this issue. I remember when I was in college, um, so a long time ago, um, I uh, developed a friendship with this, with this lady. She was much older than me um, who had, um, had an abortion in the past, had a child, um, and was pregnant again with a child and she wanted an, she was going to have an abortion. And I remember having this very long conversation with her and a sense of me pleading with her to do anything but have this abortion, that there's so many more options out there for her. Don't do this. And this is someone who claimed to be a Christian and wanted to do the right thing, but was just in such a state where she, I, I have to do this. And, um, and so I think basically what took place was she ended up having the abortion. Um, and I lost contact with her, uh, soon after that. And it was a couple of years later when I get a phone call from her family, um, saying that she was in the hospital because she tried to take her own life. And so here's, here's the point in all this is that abortions don't just destroy the life in the womb. It destroys, it destroys the life outside of the womb as well. It destroys, destroys the life of the woman, of the mother. And I think we need to recognize that. And so, um, so it's not only then to speak the truth, but it's also, and this is point B, is to speak grace to save a soul, to speak grace. So it's about speaking truth, but also speaking grace. So we can try to make laws and policies and try to prevent abortions that way, but, but we must remember that abortion is a symptom of a bigger problem. What we need to speak is the gospel of Jesus. We need to speak the gospel of Jesus. So let me share with you in this way. Um, there's there's a, a passage in Romans, Romans chapter one and chapter two. It's pretty interesting how Paul lays out uh, kind of this um, judgment or um, 
the, the truth of what people are in this sense, that we, are, we have rebelled from God, we have turned away from him, we worship these other things, and, and he gives this list of what we are engaged in. It's these sinful passions of the flesh, and he gives this huge list. I'm not going to go through the huge list, but the one that I, I love pointing out is the one that says um, that we invent ways of doing evil. It's so bad that we even are creative when it comes to doing evil. And uh, so it talks about this. And then in chapter two, it turns. That's not the passage, by the way, there. But don't worry about it. That will come up later. But I, I skipped a thing. I just, I threw a, sorry about that, Brennan. I just messed you up. Um, my fault. Uh, but um, in chapter two, he then says, and you who have the law. Do not judge those who do not have the law and do these things because you do the very same thing. It's like, well, what? What? And basically what Paul is saying is this, is that we are all, wherever we're at in life, Jews or Gentiles, if we have the law or not, if we go to church or not, we are all in the same boat. We are all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all need Jesus. We all need to come to him and put our faith in what he has done for us on the cross. He paid for our sins. He paid for our sins. And so there's a way in which we need to speak this grace to others not just to change behavior, but to change hearts for the Lord. Okay. So speak grace to save a soul. Here's the other one. I'm skipping the Romans passage, um, Brendan. I'm going to actually come back to that at the end. So you can throw it up at the end. But the next one is this call for us to repent. There is a call for us to repent. And what do I mean by that? Is I think that there is a way. Remember, we all have this framework. Okay. And, and um, it's not perfect. It's distorted in some ways. So there is ways that we, and this is what I mean by repent, where our minds and our hearts need to be changed. They need to be reformed. There's a direction and way in which we think and perceive and, and uh, even act that needs to be adjust, adjusted and turned to a different way. And that's what I mean by repentance. So, Here's one challenge. Um, in our culture today, there is money in causing division. There is profit in causing outrage. To paint other, another side as the most evil and vile monsters. So we, we definitely see that, right, in social media and on the TV when we turn on the news or look at the newspaper. There's this contentiousness, and, and it actually it... Um, we eat it up. It sells. People are profiting off of this, of, of making this contentious. And we as Christians, and I want to say it in that way, because I, I really want to challenge us in this way, because it's we as Christians, not as American Christians, not as conservative Christians or liberal Christians or any other type of uh, Christian you can think of, some other word you can add on to Christian. But as Christians, we know this life is fleeting. We know that Jesus is coming back. We know that there will be a final judgment, and we know that there will be a time when this world will be no more. Therefore, we must keep eternity in view as we engage with other people about just this issue of abortion. That we're engaging with other souls who will continue on into eternity, whether in damnation or in glorification before their God and with their God. So, with our God. So let me close with this. If you are here listening or if you're online and you even had an abortion or you are engaged with people who had an abortion, or this is such a, uh, a sensitive issue for you, 
let me, let me call, let, let me give this call. Because I think the temptation is for people who struggle with this, who have had an abortion, to wallow in guilt and shame. And I say that um, specifically or intentionally, the wallowing in guilt and shame. Because I think that there is a time for conviction. We should have a conviction. We should, there should be a way in which we do feel the guilt or even the shame. But to stay in it and to wallow in it is not good. God does not mean for us to stay there. Instead, we are to turn and move to the gospel. We need to turn to Jesus. We need to turn to his grace and mercy. Jesus paid for all of our sins. It doesn't matter which sin it is. He has paid for them all. And so this, this is the hope that we have. And so this is my Romans passage, Brendan. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. And this is how I want to close. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free. There is a freedom in this. It has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. This is the promise of the gospel. And no matter where we stand, no matter what we have struggled with or what we have done in the past, there is there is salvation. There is forgiveness. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we ask, Lord, that you would, uh, that you would be with us when it comes to this challenging issue of, of the sanctity of life and abortion. Lord, this is an, a very challenging and difficult issue. We pray, Lord, that you would um, challenge us, that you would reform us, and that we would be able to speak the truth in a way uh, that is honoring to you, but also show grace and mercy. Help us to do that well, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. Make sure you come back next week to hear the next message in our series.